the National Archives podcast series. This talk is called On the Trail of Klaus Fuchs, Atomic Spy. It was presented by Mark Dunton and recorded on Friday the 13th of September 2019 at the National Archives Q. I'm Steve Burgess, I'm Head of Events and Exhibitions here at the National Archives and it's my absolute pleasure to welcome you all here today for a further fascinating instalment of our Cold War season on the trail of Klaus Fuchs with Mark Dunton. Mark is Principal Record Specialist here at the National Archives. He specialises in post-1945 British political, social and economic history. Mark was also the lead curator on our Cold War exhibition, Protect and Survive, Britain's Cold War Revealed. Here at the National Archives, we have a vast collection of original documents relating to the Cold War. In the exhibition, you can see political memos, confidential reports, civil defence posters, practical advice on how to survive a nuclear winter, <laughs> private correspondence between high officials, and of course, a number of our MI5 records, including surveillance reports, bungled operations, and confessions, such as Klaus Fuchs. Today, Mark will take us back to the events that led to Fuchs's capture and confession. And this is back to an early chapter in the Cold War story, a time when nuclear technology was in its developmental stages, a time when any information relating to atomic and hydrogen power was of the utmost state importance, and therefore, consequently, a huge state secret. Mark will draw on what our files tell us and use them to shed light on the murky, changeable world Klaus Fuchs was wrapped up in some of which, unbelievably, took place right here in Leafy Q. Thank you very much, Steve. Hello, everyone. I'm here to tell you about Klaus Fuchs, on the trail of Klaus Fuchs, atomic spy. Klaus Fuchs, he really is a most complex individual. What lies in store for you is a fascinating but also complex story. I'm going to take you through his life story and all the permutations and consequences that went with it. Spy stories also have a great deal to do with locations, and that's a particular aspect I want to bring out in this talk, particularly local connections. So, I'm going to surprise you, perhaps, by going straight to Klaus Fuchs's confession. So let's just see how he begins here. I was born in Russellhelm, Heim, on the 29th of December, 1911, Russellheim in Germany. My father was a parson, and I had a very happy childhood. Now, Klaus's father, he was a clergyman in the Lutheran church, and like father, like son, they often say, and there's a lot of truth in that saying applied to Klaus and his father. Martin Luther, that key figure in the Protestant Reformation, was very much concerned with following one's own individual conscience. This was the guiding principle of Emil's life. The mantra that he drummed into his children was the belief that one should always do what is right, whatever the cost. Later, Emil became a Quaker and a passionate advocate of pacifism. Note that rather bland statement, I had a very happy childhood. For Fuchs, though, the one thing that most stands out is that my father always did what he believed to be the right thing to do, and he always told us that we had to go our own way, even if he disagreed. So I think it's rather significant. That's the one thing that stands out for Fuchs. You know, nothing to do with great moments of pleasure or joy, just that rather austere dictum from his father. Now, when Fuchs was 19, his mother, Elsa, committed suicide by drinking hydrochloric acid. Fuchs hardly ever mentioned his mother in later life. It emerged that his grandmother had also died through suicide and, in 1939, one of Fuchs's sisters, Elizabeth, killed herself by throwing herself onto railway tracks. His other sister, Kristen would later be admitted into a mental hospital in America. So, it was certainly a troubled family. Now, the Fuchs family were socialists and totally opposed to fascism, which of course reared its ugly head 
in the Weimar Republic in the mid to late 1920s as the Nazis made moves towards power. The Fuchs family became known locally as the Red Foxes because Fuchs is the German word for fox. Klaus became politically active in his teens and while studying mathematics and physics at Leipzig University, he joined the German Social Democratic Party, the SPD. But in 1932, the year that he transferred to Kiel University, Fuchs joined the KPD, the German Communist Party, as he felt that they would take a stronger line in the fight against Nazism. And also, the hope that was offered by communism at this time was attractive to him. Fuchs paid a price for his involvement with the KPD, and in late 1932, he was beaten up by the brown shirts, the Nazi party's original paramilitary, and thrown into a river. He lost free front teeth, and thereafter, he had to wear a dental plate for life. Well, with the Gestapo on his trail, Fuchs fled to Paris in July 1933, and then... On the 24th of September 1933, Klaus arrived at Folkestone on the Kent coast and he told the immigration officer he was coming to study at the University of Bristol. So Fuchs was a brilliant mathematician and he turned out to be a brilliant physicist as well. He uh, enrolled as a student of physics at the University of Bristol. Now, Fuchs was mindful of his alien status and, as Norman Moss puts it, he developed caution, the caution of the exile. He generally kept his communist views to himself and he was very self-contained and reserved. He studied at Bristol University for four years and gained a PhD in physics there in 1937. He then took a research post at Edinburgh University, working for the brilliant German physicist Max Born. Now, Fuchs applied for British citizenship in August 1939, but this application was overtaken by events when war broke out in September of that year. And as a German, he was classed as an enemy alien, and his application was put aside. At first, he was informed that he was not to be interned, but the crisis of May-June 1940, with the fall of France and the invasion scare, prompted emergency internment measures and Fuchs was transported to an internment camp near Quebec in Canada. While there, his shield of concealment about his political beliefs came down, and he felt free to attend communist discussion groups. Max Born in Edinburgh pressed for his release, and he was one of the first to be released from the camp, in fact, only six months after the, the camp had been set up. So he returned to resume research at Edinburgh University in January 1941. Meanwhile, back in March 1940, two émigré scientists at Birmingham University had made a major advance in nuclear research. Otto Fritsch and Rudolf Piles had completed their memorandum on the construction of a superbomb based on a nuclear chain reaction in uranium, which showed that a relatively small amount of uranium, far less than previously thought, if it could be enriched, could produce a bomb of massive destructive power. And I think, you know, the whole significant point behind this was that it would be considerably smaller than thought, so it could be delivered by a plane. Rudolf Piles, of German nationality, continued his work on the scheme at Birmingham. And in early 1941, he decided that he needed an assistant to help him on the theoretical aspects. He'd already met Fuchs and was obviously impressed by his abilities, so he wrote to him in May 1941, offering him a temporary post, which Fuchs readily accepted. And so, Fuchs then moved up to Birmingham. Rudolf and his Russian wife, Eugenia, which was shortened to Genia, invited Klaus to lodge in their family house. Fuchs was to forge strong bonds of friendship with the Piles family. Rudolf came to treat him like a son. Genia, outgoing in nature, came up with a phrase which summed up Fuchs in a very apposite manner. She said, 
He's a penny-in-the-slot person. Put a question in, and you get an answer out. But if you don't put anything in, you don't get anything out. <laughs> so, when Fuchs was interviewed by MI5 in January 1950, he stated on one occasion that he had commenced espionage activity a little later than October 1941, but generally his line was that he began the activity from mid-1942. However, there is evidence to suggest that his contacts with Soviet intelligence began as early as April 1941, when Fuchs had attended a party held in his honour at the famous Lawn Road Flats in Hampstead, the uh, modernist apartment block. And it, it was a, at a party here, it is thought that Fuchs was introduced to an intelligence officer at the Soviet Embassy by the name of Colonel Kremer. Now, Professor Frank Close has recently published a meticulously researched book about Klaus Fuchs called Trinity and Frank Close. And he pointed out that the date of Fuchs's first contact with the KGB is an important matter. Before Germany invaded the Soviet Union on the 22nd of June 1941, the Soviet Union was in a pact with Germany, effectively an ally of the Nazi regime, and therefore any offer to pass secrets over to the Soviet Union before that date would have been treason. Well, after Kremer, who Fuchs actually met four times, returned to Russia, Fuchs began to meet with a new contact, a lady that he knew as Sonia. Her real name was Ursula Kuzinski, and they would start taking regular walks together on a country path near Banbury in the guise of a couple, arm in arm, walking in the countryside. So this was around the autumn of 1942 onwards. More swapping of information. Now, Fuchs became a British citizen, and he took an oath of allegiance to the Crown on the 7th of August, 1942. But giving this commitment did not inhibit him in any way in terms of passing secrets. And here, there's, you know, we rather interesting marginalia on this document, because uh, by the order of the Secretary of State, 12th of February, 1951, so you see... His naturalised British uh, status was withdrawn in 1951 and, uh, you know, Fuchs was very upset when that happened. Anyway, in August 1943, Churchill and Roosevelt met in Quebec and they signed an agreement on US, UK and Canadian collaboration on building an atomic bomb in the United States. A team of British scientists was assembled to travel by ship to New York to work on the project and their focus was the separation of uranium-235. The team, which travelled to New York in late November 1943, included Rudolf Piles and, of course, Klaus Fuchs. Well, the espionage continued almost seamlessly. Sonia arranged for a new contact to meet with Fuchs in America, and contact between Fuchs and Raymond, as he knew him, real name Harry Gold, began in New York in February 1944. Now, much of what Fuchs passed over to him was his own work, his own notes. But he was, by this time, not limiting himself to that, and he was passing over secrets more widely. Los Alamos, or Camp Y, in New Mexico, had been chosen as the site for the laboratory where the final stages for creating an atomic bomb would be undertaken. It was remote, which was an advantage for this highly secret work, and the scenery was stunning, familiar to anyone that's seen a Western film, really, with plateaus and rock outcrops and forests. A military base surrounding the laboratory and workshops was constructed at Santa Fe, and Piles moved there in June 1944, and in August, Fuchs was suddenly ordered to join him, so he suddenly departed from New York. This is Klaus Fuchs's photograph for his security pass for Los Alamos in 1944 at the age of 33. Let's just take a look at his features for a moment. So, as you can see, he's got a, a tall forehead, 
by this time his hair is receding a bit. He's got these rather thick lips. And I don't know what to make of his eyes. You know, there's a rather blank, lost look about him in this particular photograph. I mean, it's been said that his features make him look like a typical boffin. You know, somebody that's interested in all things scientific, but not much else. Now, that doesn't really sum Fuchs up, though. So, it was a very isolated and tight-knit community at Los Alamos. Over time, Fuchs lost a little of his old reticence, and he attended parties. He was even known to dance. This shy 32-year-old bachelor brought out maternal instincts in several of the scientists' wives. Fuchs drunk quite heavily, but he seemed to have a good capacity for drink. He went on hikes and camping trips and helped to look after the Piles' children, with whom apparently he interacted very well. Now, I mentioned, of course, Fuchs's sudden departure from New York, and this was rather perturbing for Harry Gold. Before he had left the United Kingdom for New York, Fuchs had, told, had given his sister Crystal's name and address in the United States to Sonia and told her that if ever contact with him was lost, Crystal would be the emergency contact. This action would come back to bite him. A few weeks after Fuchs suddenly disappeared off to Los Alamos, Harry Gold visited Crystal at her house in Cambridge, Massachusetts, he was keen to try and re-establish contact with Klaus, of course. However, she was away. So, Harry Gold sent a coded message to Moscow, and then another visit to Crystal on the 12th of October was successful, and consequently, Fuchs was able to meet up with Gold again when, he vi when Fuchs visited his sister in February 1945. He was thus able to give Gold a crucial update on progress with the atomic bomb project, they were to meet again at Santa Fe in June 1945 when Fuchs handed him a sketch of the bomb and its components. The test of the atomic bomb was given the code name Trinity and it occurred on the 16th of July 1945 in deserts south of Los Alamos. It was observed by Fuchs and his fellow scientists wearing welder's goggles. So, they witnessed the huge and penetrating flash of light, the rise of the massive mushroom cloud, and the shock wave. It was a truly awesome spectacle. The blast was bigger than they had estimated. Oppenheimer famously declared, I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. One can only guess at Fuchs's internal reaction, his sense of responsibility for this game-changing development, the details of which he had shared with a foreign power. So following this test, atomic bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August 1945, causing massive loss of life and devastation. But Fuchs was already taking a keen interest in the rapidly evolving research on the hydrogen bomb, to which he was able to make a significant contribution. H-bombs were, of course, vastly more powerful than atom bombs. And this later poster from the early 60s aims to convey the level of destruction an H-bomb would bring if it was detonated over Britain. So, Fuchs passed information about this cutting-edge development, including notes from lectures he attended, over to Harry Gold in September 1945. So, you know, the Soviet Union was getting absolutely up-to-date information about developments. A significant event also occurred in September 1945. Thanks to a Soviet defector, a Soviet spy ring was exposed in Canada, which led to the arrest of Alan Nunn May, a British physicist who had worked in Montreal on the atomic bomb project. Uh, he was arrested in March 1946. He confessed to espionage. He was tried and sentenced to 10 years hard labor. This episode badly damaged trust between the United States and Britain, and the arrest of Nun May must have raised Fuchs's stress levels. Meanwhile, the British government had begun work on setting up the Atomic Energy Research Establishment at Harwell, south of Oxford. In June 1946, Fuchs was recalled from Los Alamos to head up the Theoretical Physics Division at Harwell. 
The Harwell site was a former RAF airfield and situated in the open Berkshire countryside. Many prefabricated bungalows sprang up on this site. Fuchs was to move into one of these prefabs, as they were called. It was a strange, bleak landscape, described by one resident as looking like a penal colony. The rows of prefabs seemed to represent a new era, a vision of the new post-war streamlined world. And Fuchs was to move into a prefab like this after a time. I think he, originally he might have been sharing a house with Herbert and Ernest Skinner, who I'm going to now mention, because Fuchs found himself working with old acquaintances at Harwell, and these did include Herbert Skinner, the head of physics, whom Fuchs had met at Bristol University, and his Austrian wife, Erna. And this couple were to become particularly close to Fuchs at Harwell. Fuchs was at the pinnacle of his career, at the heart of the British nuclear project, hugely respected, and he started contributing to the initial work on the first British bomb. But following the Alan Nunn May case, the British Security Service put some foreign-born scientists working in sensitive areas under surveillance, and Fuchs came to their attention. Their interest was prompted by Henry Arnold, the security officer at Harwell, who hinted in a subtle, cautious way at possible concerns about the scientist. Arnold had an avuncular, easygoing nature, which masked the fact that he actually had very sensitive antennae, and he managed to befriend Fuchs. MI5, who were in contact with Arnold, noted Fuchs's close friendship with Rudolf Piles, who had a Russian wife. A sufficient cause for suspicion, in their view, at a time when the Cold War was underway and getting chillier. Surveillance on Fuchs began in late 1946, and from mid-January to early April 1947, the mail going to Fuchs at Harwell and the piles in Birmingham was intercepted, and their phone calls were tapped. But nothing was found of an incriminating nature. As Frank Close has written, it was MI5's misfortune that their first close watch on Fuchs coincided with him taking a sabbatical from espionage. Well, in the summer of 1947, Fuchs renewed his contact with Soviet intelligence in earnest, and he was given instructions to go to a pub, the Nag's Head, opposite Wood Green Tube Station. This pub is now called The Goose, and he was to carry a copy of the Tribune, the Socialist Labour Party magazine, and look out for his contact, who would be carrying a red book. The other man would make some comment about a drink. I think the original protocols involved Guinness, but I'm not sure if that's actually what they went for in the end. The other man, on the 27th of September, Fuchs successfully made contact with the Soviet agent, a Russian man whose name was Fekis, Fekis, Fekislov. I, I, I knew I'd have a problem with this name. Feklisov, Fek, forgive me. Fuchs told him about the Russian plans to build an atomic bomb, and he gave him detailed notes about the project. So, Feklisov met with Fuchs in other London pubs at intervals over 1947 to 48, including the Spotted Horse in Putney High Street, which is still there today. So uh, give that a thought when you're next in Putney High Street. So around mid-1948, the Russian told Fuchs of a way of re-establishing contact if for any reason it was broken off. Now, this is all recorded in a document based on an interview with Fuchs by William Scarden, his MI5 interrogator, in February 1950. So, Fuchs was to go to the corner of Stanmore Road and Kew Road, specifically 166 Kew Road, and then to throw a copy of the magazine Men Only... Okay, over the garden fence, bearing on the tenth page the suggested arrangements for a rendezvous in the event of meetings breaking down. So having done this, he was instructed to place a mark on the fence on the north side of Holmesdale Road, opposite a tree at the eastern end of the road. This would indicate to the occupier of the house in Stanmore Road that there was something for him <laughs> in the garden. 
And there is another Kew location involved, the Kew Gardens Station Parade by the Tube Station. Because between two of the shops, it says in the file, there was an entry, and number 14 Station Parade is mentioned by Scarden. Now, this was Etherington's furniture shop and is now the Glass House restaurant. So the alleyway in question is between Peathers, the butchers, and the Glass House. And he was instructed to leave a chalk mark there on a fence in the event of a rendezvous becoming too dangerous if he thought he was being trailed, for example. And the other party, if they had similar apprehensions, they too would leave a warning mark indicating it was too risky to make the magazine drop. So, presumably, Fuchs would have gone to the alleyway in Kew Station's parade first on arrival at Kew Gardens Tube Station to see if there's any warning mark there. I think that's probably the order of events. Now, 166 Kew Road. This was described as a corner house having a walled garden abutting onto Stanmore Road. So what we're talking about is a garden. And, uh, well, I visited this location with colleagues on a sort of Klaus Klaus, uh, Fuchs walking tour. And I can tell you that there's no sign of 166 Kew Road now. There's actually a jump in the number sequence between 162 and 168. And there's now a building called Blenheim Court at this site. But, you know, just along from there, there's Blenheim Court and um, a modern set of dwellings at Topery Square. And in fact, uh, the document speaks of Klinkert's nurseries, where there are many fine examples of uh, Topery. So the mystery was solved when I visited Richmond Local Studies Collection at Richmond Town Hall. And from those sources, I discovered that the site was redeveloped. Blenheim Court and Topery Square were constructed in 1968. So it appears that 166 Kew Road was uh, demolished to make way for this redevelopment at the time. So the magazine drop would have occurred. Apparently, Fuchs did practice a dry run with this, which was successful. Here's the glass house, and this is the alleyway in question. And in the document, they talk about a fence just a little bit further along, along here. Well, there's certainly a wall there. That would have been ideal to make a chalk mark on. But anyway, you get the picture. So just have a think about that when you're next in Q Station Parade, that it was actually a site for spycraft from the Cold War. Now, from late 1947 onwards, Fuchs, as I mentioned, um, formed close bonds with Herbert and Erna Skinner, particularly Erna, who was very flirtatious. And Fuchs and Erna spent a lot of time together, and this seems to have been tolerated by Herbert. Did they actually have an affair? MI5 came to the view that Erna was Fuchs's mistress, but we don't know for certain whether they were lovers. Certainly, Erna seemed to enjoy looking after lost soul Klaus. Well, the strain of his double life began to manifest itself. He was repeatedly ill with coughs, but doctors could find no physical cause for these. It is quite possible they were stress-related. In the summer of 1949, his father, Emil, came to visit at Harwell and was put up in the Skinner's home. Klaus worried that his father would reveal his son's background in the Communist Party. Fortunately for Klaus, no such misfortune occurred, but there was a cloud on the horizon. Emil was considering taking up a post as a professor of theology in Leipzig University, and this was in the Soviet occupation zone of Germany. This could pose a problem for Klaus in terms of his security status. Another looming cloud was that Emil brought news of Klaus's sister, Crystal, who was suffering a mental illness and was undergoing treatment in a Boston sanatorium. In the late summer and autumn of 1949, Fuchs once again fell under suspicion by the security service. The United States Army Signal Corps cracked the Soviet diplomatic codes under the Venona project, and having made this breakthrough, they, working with MI5 and government communications headquarters, GCHQ, they managed to decode some Soviet messages, including past messages. And among these, they found a message sent from the Soviet consulate in New York to Moscow in 1944, which referred to a document about atomic energy with extremely limited circulation, and a British scientist 
codename REST. Frank Close argues convincingly that the credit for the breakthrough rested with the specialist code breakers at GCHQ rather than the FBI, as J. Edgar Hoover was later to claim. As Guy Little, MI5's Deputy Director General, wrote at this time, there is not much clue as to his identity except that he had a sister. So, you, know, you can see here on the screen, you know, this is an internal MI5 letter and um, is saying, you know, we have discovered material which, though fragmentary, appears to indicate that in 1944 a British or British-sponsored scientist working here on atomic energy or related subjects was providing Russians with the policy information and documents. Agent's cover name was initially REST, subsequently changed to Charles. In July 1944, he'd been working for six months. Both Fuchs and Piles were placed under surveillance. And in the files, you can see the fascinating process of how they narrowed down the identity of the spy through a process of logical deduction. You know, so this is you know, one example here. Unidentified Soviet agent in the United States. Certain facts at the top. His sex, male, yeah. And then point number four, had a sister staying in the United States for at least part of the time he was there. But for some time, you know, they're rather uncertain about who the scientist is. So warrants from the Home Office were issued so that Fuchs's telephones at his office and his home could be tapped and his mail intercepted and plans were made to bug his prefab as well and MI5 officers were to watch Fuchs during any trips he made to London. Wing Commander Arnold, the security officer at Harwell that I mentioned earlier, was brought into the investigating team. It should be pointed out that Piles was very much under surveillance as well. On the 10th of September 1949, MI5 knew that Fuchs had a sister in the United States called Crystal, and the focus on Fuchs intensified. The urgency was intensified still further when it became apparent that the Soviet Union had exploded its first atomic bomb, which occurred on the 29th of August 1949. Fuchs had saved the Soviet Union around two years' work in the development of the bomb. The successful test came as a great shock to the West. Fuchs was followed closely when he went to London for regular scientific meetings about the nuclear program at the Ministry of Supply at Shelmeck's house, a building familiar, I'm sure, to many of you on the uh, embankment there. And he was acutely aware, Fuchs was acutely aware that he was likely to be trailed in the London streets after such meetings and he would try a number of tricks to test whether or not he was being followed. On the 2nd of December 1949, and I'm quoting from one particular file, Fuchs left Shelmeck's house at 4pm and walked to Charing Cross Road, where he purchased a gramophone record and several books of a sex nature, including one called Paris and a copy of Health and Strength. This latter book he dropped later when boarding a bus and it was discreetly retrieved by one of our assistants. It is attached here too. Now, most certainly, Fuchs deliberately dropped that book, which was probably in a bag, plain brown wrapper perhaps, and he dropped it to see if the man who he thought was tailing him would stop to pick it up, and he did. And so here it is. This is Health and Strength, um, the grand Christmas and display number from December 1949. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's actually a magazine for bodybuilding enthusiasts, uh, mostly, f um, f as you can see, featuring photographs of oiled-up, uh, highly muscular men, uh, some of which are, you know, somewhat homoerotic in nature. And it has a veneer of respectability, uh, promoting the values of physical fitness, but it's the sort of magazine that um, obviously would have had appeal for, for many gay men at the time, um, before gay pornography was available. And it's an intriguing choice of magazine for Fuchs to tease the security service with. You know, there's no analytical comment about this magazine in the files, but it is interesting. It does raise questions. It's, as I say, a bold choice of magazine. I mean, Fuchs himself did not practice bodybuilding himself. I mean, judging by his appearance, 
You know, I mean, I realize there's a danger of reading too much into this. I mean, perhaps this is just Fuchs, the fantasist, who enjoyed teasing the security service. But think back also to Men Only magazine. It's a somewhat decadent choice, isn't it, to use to contact your Soviet network. Was that Fuchs's choice of magazine as well? Well, the surveillance rolled on, and the next significant development was that Fuchs visited Wing Commander Arnold, and he told him that his father, Emil, was going to accept a chair of theology at Leipzig University, which, as I mentioned earlier, was in the Soviet zone. So Fuchs asked Arnold if he should resign his post if his father did this. Arnold said, well, this is up to the administration people to decide on that. So following the receipt of this information from Arnold, MI5, after due consultation, decided it was time to interrogate Fuchs. Enter Jim Scarden. William James Scarden, known as Jim. There was a former detective inspector of the Metropolitan Police who had been brought into MI5 in 1942, and he'd built up a reputation as a highly skilled interrogator. Now, doubt has been expressed in some quarters as to whether that reputation was fully justified, because I think there had been some failures on his record, but anyhow. So, as you can see here, he was a tall, thin man with a small moustache, and typically seen smoking a pipe. He had a low-key, mild manner, and he was very skillful at winning over the confidence of a subject. So, on the morning of the 21st of December, 1949, Arnold took Scarden to Fuchs's office, introduced the two men, and left them. Fuchs had been given no prior notice of the interview. Arnold just mentioned the investigation of Fuchs's father and just said, someone has come down to see you. Scarden took his usual friendly chat approach. He later reported that Fuchs spent an hour and a quarter talking about his family and his political background, confirming facts that Scarden already knew, but giving some fresh nuggets of information. And Fuchs took the story up to 1943-44, when he was based in New York. Scarden had one card to play. It was known that a copy of a report was given to the Russians in New York. He seized the opportunity. So, quoting from his account here, having reached this stage of the interrogation, I alleged to Fuchs that he'd been in touch with a Soviet official or a Soviet representative and, and had passed to that person information bearing upon his work. Fuchs's first reaction was to open his mouth as though surprised and then to smile and say, I don't think so. And, you know, Fuchs repeats this, I don't think so, again. And, you know, as Scarden said to him, this was an ambiguous reply to which uh, Fuchs said, I don't understand. Perhaps you will tell me what the evidence is. I have done no such thing. So he, he strongly denied that he was responsible for the leaking of the information, and Fuchs stated, yes, he was aware that Russia had been excluded from sharing the information. The interview continued after lunch, but Fuchs had nothing fresh to offer Scarden, no sign of a confession, and Fuchs must have sensed that Scarden had little in detail to pin on him, given that actually he'd been spying for about seven to eight years, just a narrow focus on New York. So this sense was strengthened during the next two interviews. But we now get to the thorny subject of possible inducement. So look at this section in Scarden's account where he says, I took the opportunity, of course, to point out that a favorable report from us might have the effect of keeping him at Harwell, where he said he would be most happy to stay. So this rather suggests, it kind of implies that MI5 regarded his transgression as minor, and that if this matter could be cleared up, perhaps Fuchs could just stay at Harwell. And certainly, you know, if we jump ahead a bit, and look ahead at this section from Fuchs's confession about, I was given the chance of admitting it and staying at Harwell or of clearing out. I was, not sure of, I was not sure enough of myself to stay at Harwell and therefore I denied the allocation and decided I would have to leave Harwell. So these aspects 
these were a concern. These aspects to do with inducement were a concern to MI5 prior to Fuchs's trial. This is Scarden's delicately balanced conclusion after that first meeting. He says, I find it extremely difficult to give a conclusive view on the guilt or innocence of Fuchs. But actually, I think he was more certain than this paragraph suggests, because in the next paragraph, he writes, reviewing all the facts in the light of the interrogation, I feel sure we have selected the right man. On the 30th of December, 1949, Scarden paid Fuchs another visit. He described Fuchs as being quite calm and self-possessed. He questioned Fuchs at great length about the movements of his sister, Crystal Heinemann, and her husband. He pursued certain other lines, but he got nowhere. Meanwhile, the surveillance continued. I mean, this is another amazing document from our collection. So this is a sort of transcript. The, the bugging device in, in Fuchs's prefab has been at work. So you can see the amount, these details. So, you know, 9.13 to 9.31, Fuchs was moving about in the prefab. And then, you know, and then later on, you know, he was heard moving about. 21.07, Fuchs stoked his fire. 21.14, quiet in the prefab, Fuchs had gone out. And then, look, there's a call from Erna, Erna Skinner, who would have been living nearby, very close. Uh, Fuchs said he would go round. That was at 1.10 in the morning. And this, by the way, is on the 31st of December. Quiet, Fuchs had gone. Uh, 5.20 a.m., Fuchs returned to the prefab. So, were Fuchs and Erna having an affair? Well, I don't know, but they'd certainly been up talking late into the wee hours. So, meanwhile, the surveillance continued, and we reach 1950, and um, on the 2nd of January 1950, Prime Minister Clement Attlee was updated about Fuchs. I could have perhaps mentioned earlier, you know, Attlee was kept pretty well informed about developments um, from reasonably early on. And um, Sir John Cockcroft, so he was the director of the Atomic Energy Research Establishment, and he muddied the waters somewhat when on the 10th of January he told Fuchs that he would have to leave Harwell and he would help him to find an alternative job. But he gave the impression that the matter wasn't particularly urgent. I think Sir John Cockcroft, he wasn't the confrontational type. He didn't find this sort of thing very easy. So Fuchs's next interview with Scarden was on the 13th of January, at which Fuchs denied yet again um, that he'd passed any information to the Soviet or to their representatives. And Scarden commented that Fuchs was completely composed. Fuchs was brilliant at keeping up a front, but in reality, he was increasingly stressed by all the questioning and very concerned about his sister, Crystal, who had been in a psychiatric unit recently. Fuchs was worried that she would get drawn into the investigation and the impact of this on her. In mid-January, Fuchs took a few days leave, and this coincided, conveniently enough, with Herbert Skinner being away. Ernest Skinner and Klaus Fuchs took the opportunity to go away together. On Monday the 16th of January, they drove from Harwell to Maidenhead, and they booked in at the Riviera Hotel. The next day, they drove on to Richmond, and they spent two nights together at the Palm Court Hotel in Richmond. Now, we don't know in detail what they discussed during this tryst. MI5 did not follow them to this hotel, and there was no attempt to bug the hotel room. But it is known that on the 19th of January, Erna phoned Herbert at the Royal Society in distress. Fuchs had told her that he would be leaving Harwell, and he hinted that he shared some secret work, though he also, I think, played this down. But back in Harwell, Fuchs met Arnold for lunch on the 23rd of January. He very much saw Arnold as a friend. He told him that he disagreed with communism, as it was practiced in the Soviet Union. Arnold felt he could be on the verge of confessing, and through this contact, another talk with Scarden was arranged for the next day. But let's just, for the moment, just stay on Palm Court Hotel in Richmond. Fuchs was at the Palm Court Hotel, Richmond, with Ernest Skinner. MI5 know that much. It's 17th of January, 1950. I've researched this at Richmond Local Studies Collection. So, um, this 
is Palm Court Hotel. Okay, so those of you familiar with Richmond Riverside will recognize that sort of tower structure by Richmond Bridge, yes? And um, you can see there just about the old letters of Palm Court Hotel there. It's all a bit derelict looking. It changed hands several times. Briefly, um, the hotel was occupied by the Chiswick Women's Aid for Battered Wives in the, you know, 1975 to 1978. Of course, Richmond Riverside has all been redeveloped now. But if you look at these comparisons, so actually what happened is that the internal building of Palm Court Hotel was pretty much demolished, but they kept the outer walls and they just restored them very kind of heavily. And you can see, if you look at the modern day, this is Heron House, Richmond Riverside, and then compare it with the sort of little windows here, you can see that they've more or less kept the exterior walls of Palm Court Hotel. I'm just showing you this because, I don't know, I'm a local resident, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I like living here in Kew in Richmond, and I think it might be of interest to some of you here, I hope, as well. I love all this kind of it happened here stuff. And it's, and it's also interesting to think about Fuchs being drawn to this place. It's a tranquil setting for him in January 1950 when his mind was actually in a lot of turmoil under all the MI5 questioning. So, an interview was set up again with Scarden. The interview took place in Fuchs's prefab in Harwell, 11 a.m., Tuesday the 24th of January. Look at the way the interview starts. There's no niceties. It just begins, Scarden goes up to his door of his prefab, Fuchs opens it, he says, I said to Fuchs, you asked to see me and here I am. And he replied, yes, it is rather up to me now. However, Fuchs could not bring himself to come out and say what he had done. Instead, he gave Scarden his life story in more detail than ever. Scarden urged him to reveal the full story, by which he meant, obviously, the espionage activity. Fuchs said, I will never be persuaded by you to talk. And then they go off for lunch, okay, at the Queen's Head. <laughs> and Scarden noticed that Fuchs seemed to be resolving the matter, and he seemed to be considerably abstracted. He then suggested that they hurry back to his house to continue the interview. So Scarden then asks him, have you passed information to the Russians? And in reply, Fuchs told him he had been engaged in espionage from mid-1942 until about a year ago. And he goes on to describe the story of how he passed atomic secrets to the Russians over a period of seven years. He said that the worst thing that he had passed to his Russian contacts was the method of making the atomic bomb. Scarden must have been astounded as the story unfolded. There were some details that Fuchs left out. For example, the fact that his first contact with Soviet intelligence was in 1941, not 1942, the issue I mentioned earlier. MI5 chiefs were briefed by Scarden the next morning, the 25th of January, and the shockwaves reverberated. In the meantime, Fuchs met Arnold to apologize to him for being secretive. Hmm. You know, he, he remained kind of friends, as he saw it, he was kind of friend with Arnold. On the 26th of January, Scarden met with Fuchs again and obtained further details from him about his espionage activities. He asked if Fuchs would like to make a written statement and they agreed in London the next day to do this. So, this is part of the confession statement made at the War Office Friday the 27th of January. It actually says very little about the offences. It's more an explanation of why he acted as he did. And at one point he states that at this time, and he doesn't exactly specify exactly when that was, but it must have been after Germany's attack on Russia in 1941. At this time, I had complete confidence in Russian policy, and I believe that the Western Allies deliberately allowed Russia and Germany to fight each other to the death. I had therefore no hesitation in giving all the information I had, even though occasionally I tried to concentrate mainly on giving information on the results of my own work. He also stated that in the post-war period, he began to have doubts about Russian policy and deliberately missed a rendezvous with his contact. Now, this section is particularly fascinating. So here, Fuchs is describing how he managed to 
compartmentalize things. Essentially, he's saying here, I kept my personal friendships in one compartment and my duty to the Communist Party or the Soviet Union in the other compartment and generally was successful in keeping these compartments separate. Now, I mean, this is the compartmentalization of, well, almost like a sociopath or even a psychopath, although I don't really want to describe him in those terms, but it is reminiscent of Kim Philby. And it, I mean, it is one of the fascinating aspects of this, how you're able to keep up a front in this way. And I think taking the metaphor further, I think what happens in these cases is that over time, the wall between these compartments starts to break down and fall apart. And the strain of this on the double agent starts to really take its toll, manifesting itself often in, in heavy drinking, for example. Now, during giving this statement, I think Fuchs was in a sort of trance-like state. It's hard to believe that he really, truly understood the import of what he'd confessed to doing. As Mike Rossiter has written, it is a statement made in the belief that there is still something to debate. You know, he's saying things like, um, all I can do now is try and repair the damage I have done, you know, this sort of thing. On the last page, so this is in our exhibition, and, you know, when I first read through this confession, I was so struck by the paragraph on the last page here. So when he says, since coming to Harwell, I have met English people of all kinds, and I have come to see in, in many of them a deep-rooted firmness which enables them to lead a decent way of life. I do not know where this springs from, and I don't think they do, but it is there. What a strange tangent to go on when you've just confessed to this momentous business of spying. To me, it suggests, you know, he must have been almost in like some sort of trance. And I guess from his point of view, he'd relieved himself of a terrible burden and it'll all be cleared up now. Well, why did he confess? Frank Close um, argues persuasively that Klaus was concerned about the very fragile state of his sister Crystal's mental health and that had she been drawn into the investigation any further, it might have pushed her over the edge. Remember that his mother, his grandmother, and his other sister had all committed suicide, and Klaus didn't want the death of Crystal on his conscience. In the confession, he stated that, I realize I will have to state the extent of the information I have given. So Skarden said to him, you had better tell me. I can't, said Fuchs. Why not, asked Skarden. Because you're not security cleared, <laughs> said Fuchs. It is hilarious. But I, I don't think Fuchs was joking. It gives a clue, actually, that about the way his mind worked along peculiar straight lines. Anyway, it was arranged then for Fuchs to, give, uh, to visit the War Office and to provide this information to Michael Perrin of the Tube Alloys Directorate. Tube Alloys being the British Atomic Research Programme. So, Clement Attlee and the Attorney General, Sir Hartley Shawcross, he was the lead British prosecutor at the Nuremberg Trials. They were informed of Fuchs's confession, and the US authorities were also informed. There were worries expressed by MI5 about the inducement aspect, but the Director of Public Prosecutions was confident that a successful prosecution could take place, and Sir Hartley Shawcross gave authorization for Fuchs's arrest. On Thursday the 2nd of February, Michael Perrin telephoned Fuchs at Harwell and asked him if he would come to his office in the Shelmex building that afternoon for an appointment at 3 p.m. Fuchs had no idea what lay in store. It had been arranged that Commander Leonard Burt of Special Branch would use Perrin's office to arrest him. But it wasn't the smoothest of procedures. Burt was delayed, but Perrin just managed to slip outside his office into the corridor and Fuchs entered to find a complete stranger who announced that he was under arrest for breaches of the Official Secrets Act. Fuchs was staggered, went pale and collapsed into Perrin's chair. Fuchs asked to see Perrin and said to him, you realise what this will mean for Harwell? The implication being that the UK's nuclear programme would not be able to continue if he was withdrawn in this abrupt way. He was saying, in so many words, don't you realise I am indispensable? 
Well, Fuchs was taken to the cells at Bow Street Police Station, and the next morning he appeared at Bow Street Court, and the charges against him were read, and then he was taken to Brixton Prison to await trial. Rudolf Piles learned the news from a reporter who phoned him during an event at Birmingham University. After some difficulty, he managed to speak to Genia on the telephone, and this call was recorded by MI5. And you can just see how astonished and bewildered they were. This is Piles talking to his wife. Terrible things are happening. Message from London that Fuchs has been before a police court today charged with violating the Official Secrets Act. Mrs. P. Fuchs, um, he says, having given information, it says, to the Russians. Good God. And has been remanded for a week. Good God, what? You know, so... They are absolutely, and she's saying, Danny, I think it's complete nonsense. I mean, you know, they are staggered and astonished, bewildered. This severe sense of shock and amazement was felt by many of Fuchs's old colleagues. Well, Erna and Herbert Skinner were somewhat less surprised as they had had some prior notification or inkling that Fuchs was in trouble, although the gravity of the situation wore heavily on them as well, particularly as the extent of Fuchs's espionage became clear. Erna was to suffer a nervous breakdown. The piles had treated Fuchs like a son, and the sense of betrayal cut very, very deep. So Genia wrote a heartfelt letter to Klaus when he was in prison, and we have a typed version of this. And the distress and anguish that he has caused her is palpable. I think uh, on the previous page she says something like, you know, you didn't have to dance and be friendly with all the scientists and their children. You know, you didn't, you know, you didn't have to do all that. You know, and then here she's saying, uh, Klaus, don't be a child. You know, it's your job now to sort all this out. Uh, this is your job, Klaus, and you never shirked, not even the washing up. It's these little poignant details. And then further down she says here, this letter is just a sea of ink because her tears on the original handwritten letter were blurring everything she'd written, so she asked her husband to type it up. This letter is just a sea of ink. I'm asking Rudy to copy it. But even now she's showing compassion to him. Would you like me to come and see you? You are now going through the hardest time a man can go through. You have burned your God. God help you. So, I mean, Klaus was certainly affected by this letter, and he struck a humble tone in his correspondence with Genia and Erna, although, from what I can judge, he tended to write about his own feelings in a rather indulgent way, and I'm not aware of him expressing how sorry he was in a truly straightforward way. There seemed to be a missing element of empathy. Sometimes contrition did come to the surface, particularly in his responses to Erna, but in general, his sense of pity seems to be main, mainly reserved for himself. Well, for several weeks, Fuchs was under the illusion that he faced the death sentence if found guilty. And according to his own account, he had come to terms with this. So he was stunned to find out from his defense counsel that this was not the case and that he would be facing a prison sentence. The trial took place at the Old Bailey on the 1st of March, 1950, Sir Hartley Shawcross led the prosecution, Lord Chief Justice Lord Goddard was judge and jury, and the trial lasted barely 90 minutes. Fuchs was found guilty of espionage and sentenced to the maximum sentence, 14 years in prison. Goddard, a strong advocate of capital punishment, was frustrated that he was unable to impose the death sentence. It should be pointed out that Fuchs only gave very limited help to MI5 and the FBI, who also interviewed him while he was serving his sentence, in terms of identifying his Soviet contacts. He was very sparing with the information he gave. He was keen to avoid being responsible for getting others arrested. It seems that to do so would have violated his code of personal conduct, or perhaps he was worried about the long-term implications of this sort of cooperation, fearful of reprisals by the Soviet Union, sometime in the future. As I mentioned earlier, Fuchs was very upset when his British naturalization was withdrawn in 1951. He was imprisoned in Wormwood Scrubs, Stafford Prison and Wakefield Prison and was a model prisoner. 
Fuchs became eligible for remission due to his good behavior and he was released on the 23rd of June, 1959. He immediately flew to East Germany, the GDR, where he was to spend the rest of his days. Within a few months of arriving in the GDR, Fuchs married Greta Kielsen, the same Greta that he'd met in Paris back in 1933. Now, how this came about after such a long interval remains a mystery. Fuchs was quizzed by Soviet intelligence officers about his conduct during the MI5 investigation, and he told him what, they f what he thought they wanted to hear. Now, this was all done in the guise of a friendly chat, but in fact, the KGB were not pleased with the way that Fuchs had confessed to and collaborated with the British Security Service. Fuchs was never fated by the Soviet Union for his work in handing over nuclear secrets. This was mainly because the Soviet Union did not want to give the impression that it relied on stealing secrets in order to create nuclear weapons. They wanted people to think this was a great country that could achieve such things through their own merit. Fuchs became deputy director of the Institute for Nuclear Research in Rossendorf, Dresden, until he retired in 1979. He was given awards for his achievements in science, and he died on the 28th of January 1988, age 76. Moving to a conclusion now, naturally, I've been trying to assess Klaus Fuchs as a human being. And the other day, I saw some publicity for a William Blake exhibition at the Tate. Now, why am I mentioning this, you may well be wondering. Well, it's because I was reminded of Blake's famous painting, of Newton, and in this painting, as, you know, as another great physicist, an astronomer, a, a mathematician, a theologian, Isaac Newton is shown sitting on a rock in the darkness, drawing on a parchment scroll using a compass, and he's entirely preoccupied with his own thoughts. He's seemingly oblivious to the wonderful rich textures which cover the rock caused by living organisms such as algae which represent the world of nature, colorful diversity, and the spirit of imagination as opposed to the narrow focus on rationality symbolized by Newton's approach. Well, does this ring true for Klaus Fuchs? I think elements of it do resonate for him, but not entirely, because he was capable of glimpsing this stuff. You know, he was drawn to Richmond, for example, and there's plenty of beauty in the landscape here. And he could appreciate the kindness of human beings, the beauty of the human spirit, too. The thing is, he could appreciate it or admire it, and he talked about how he admired the decency that he saw in many English people, but there was a disconnect. Like many, well, like all human beings, Klaus Fuchs was moulded by his childhood, and despite his bland statement that his was a happy one, I am not convinced. I think something went badly wrong there, and one can only speculate on the nature of it. The indications are that he did not come from a loving, nurturing family background. He never mentioned his mother, who tragically committed suicide, and remember his father's dictum, which he drummed into his children, always do what is right, whatever the cost. It does sound very austere. Fuchs developed an arrogant individualism as a result, and with his high intelligence and with his own narrow conscribing compass to reference Blake's image, Fuchs created weirdly constructed cages with bars made of cold, remorseless logic in which he trapped himself. I believe that Fuchs had what is called in the modern jargon a narcissistic personality disorder. He took advantage of the trust of others for a lengthy period, seemingly without being troubled by conscience, although this began to change in the later period. To be fair, in his confession statement, he did show awareness of the way that he'd compartmentalized his feelings and interactions. It is all very complicated because he could present himself as a likable and helpful colleague and friend. In my judgment, his dealings with his friends after his arrest show his intensive preoccupation with his own feelings and a lack of genuine sustained empathy, although some contrition surfaced. He had an inflated sense of self-importance and was prone to self-delusion. When Piles challenged him about his attitude to communism, because Piles went to visit him in prison seeking answers, Fuchs said to him, said he intended that when the Russians had taken over everything, to get up and say what he thought was wrong with the system. 
displaying incredible naivety. Like so many individuals who spied for the Soviet Union, he appears to have bought into communism as an ideology and, in essence, stuck with that. Now, I think you know, much of what I've been saying, I guess, sounds harshly critical of him, but I suppose you know, we should take into account his family circumstances, including, without wishing to sound in any way glib about it, the prevalence of mental health issues within his family. So, should we be grateful to him for sharing the secrets of the atomic bomb with the Soviet Union, thus putting the balance into the balance of terror? I find it difficult to give him credit in this respect, and of course, considering this, leads us into the tricky area of counterfactual history, which I'm not terribly keen on. I believe that the Soviet Union would have acquired the bomb before long in any case. I mean, Fuchs probably saved them about two years. It should be noted that, even though the first Soviet test came in August 1949, the first Soviet airdrop of an atomic bomb did not occur until 1951. Just think back to the Trinity A-bomb test on the 16th of July 1945, which Fuchs observed. It is mind-boggling to reflect how Fuchs might have felt witnessing this truly awesome spectacle to which he had made a significant contribution, a game-changing new weapon, the details of which he had shared with a foreign power. The stakes could not have been higher. Thank you very much. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.